while we continue on with faith and diligence and the use of the ordinary means. Um, the um, genesis of this study came from reading a book entitled Green Pastures by Ryan J. Davidson. And we read this with the young men, the elders and I and the young men read this together. It's really, really a very, very fine book. There's much profit in it. And I would commend it to all of you for reading. And today's, today's lesson is just going to be basically the themes that are in that book um, by Davidson. Uh, but I think it needs to go a little further than it goes. And so that's one of the reasons that I'm doing this study. Uh, we're going to study, first of all, the ordinary means of grace. And then afterwards, we're going to study the, uh, what will, what will address what we should expect in using the ordinary means of grace. And then this will lead us into a discussion about revival. And I, this morning in my own personal Bible reading, I was reading in Second Chronicles chapter 30. And I want to read to you from Second Chronicles 30. You remember Hezekiah, that great king, godly king Hezekiah, who did a, um, a Passover like none had ever been done since the days of Solomon. And I, I can't read the whole thing to you, but I want to read just a few verses from chapter 30, starting at verse 21. So once they, the people had gathered and they offered the Passover, it says, So the children of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And I want us to think about the term great gladness. Uh, Raina asked me this morning while we were working on breakfast together, she said, would you call that revival? I said, yes, I would call that revival. They kept it with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing to the Lord, accompanied by loud instruments. Loud ones. I don't know what was wrong with those guys, why they couldn't keep it quiet. But they were using loud instruments, it says. And Hezekiah gave encouragement to all the Levites who taught the good knowledge of the Lord. Notice they were teaching, teaching truth, the good knowledge of the Lord. And uh, let's see, where are we? And they ate throughout the feast seven days, offering peace offerings and making confession to the Lord God of their fathers. So they were also confessing their sins. And then I'm skipping down to verse um, 26. So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place to heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask as we look at the ordinary means of grace this morning, and then proceed in future lesson to look at the extraordinary blessing that we always hope for in using these ordinary means, that you would be pleased to enliven our hearts to desire you above all else. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The outline for this study. <clears throat> We're going to be looking at, first of all, what is meant by the ordinary means of grace, then why, what are they? 
And then what we should pray for in the ordinary means of grace, revival. And then the historical examples of extraordinary, the ordinary means of grace and revivals. And then finally, the dangers in overemphasizing both the ordinary and the extraordinary means of grace. This, this, this study and the plan. Today, the ordinary means of grace. Wednesday night, uh, Pastor Dale asked me to teach this Sunday and next Sunday. And Pastor Al says, there's no Sunday school next Sunday. Did you all know that? You all knew it. I didn't. But I anyway, there's no. So he said, do this on Wednesday. So I'm going to be teaching this on Wednesday, the second part of the lesson, since I'd already prepared it, um, praying for the extraordinary blessing of God on the ordinary means of grace. Then on December 13th, I'll be dealing with, uh, we're going to show the DVD entitled Revival. Um, the works of God, first half only, it's 117 minutes, and we can't do that all in one Wednesday night. So we'll do the first half. Uh, it's put out by Reformation Heritage Books. It features Jeremy Walker as the narrator. Others include Jeff Thomas, Ian Hamilton, Joel Beakey, Sinclair Ferguson, Steve Lawson, Stuart Alliott, and many others. Most of you, I'm sure, have heard of most of those men that are there uh, in that. And then, because we can't complete it, I didn't pass this by Pastor Al, but he's been, he's always so kind to me. Um, we're going to open our home on Friday the 15th uh, to um, those interested, invited to watch the last part of the uh, DVD on revival and bring some finger food to share. We'll, we'll study and eat and pray and whatever else. And then on January 3rd, 2024, uh, Grant Kemick is going to be teaching on the state of the church 2024, ending with the state of the church here in Rockford. So that's the plan that he'll be doing. That's on Wednesday, January 3rd. That's after the new year, as you all know. Okay. Now, whoops there. What is meant by the ordinary means of grace? Well, first, we'll define the ordinary means of grace. This definition comes from the book um, Green Pastures by Davidson. The ordinary means of grace are the instruments Christ ordinarily uses to birth and strengthen the faith of the elect as he is present among them. And that's from Davidson on page 20. I think it's a good definition. There's a lot of other definitions that are likewise just as good as this one, uh, but it is, uh, it's adequate and it's, it's very, very helpful, I think. Uh, second, we must understand that faith is a grace. I always hope that when I say this, I'm speaking to the choir who already believes it. But we already we need to be reminded, don't we, that faith is a grace. Faith isn't something we worked up. Faith is a gift of God, as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If you think that the faith you have that you worked up and you were smarter than your neighbors, and that's why you believe you don't understand Christianity. It is a gift from God. Praise God for His gracious gift of faith. Third, grace and peace need to be multiplied. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2-4. through four. 
grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I've highlighted that in bold because I think that's an important thing for us to remember. Because we have grace and faith does not mean we have all the grace and faith that we should have. They need to be multiplied, Peter says, as he was directed by the Spirit of God. As His divine power has given to us things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of this in the world through lust. I'm sure you are impressed, as I am impressed, as I read through the Bible. And uh, it's, wherever we read in the Bible, I think especially in the New Testament, how it is that that this Christianity is a powerful religion. It is a joyous religion. It is a religion that has so many blessings and benefits uh, our, our knowledge and in our experience. And it is amazing that there's nothing like it in all the world because we worship the true and living God, don't we? There's no one like our God. Uh, not even close. And then fourth, we have some questions we want to ask. And that is, why do we need grace and peace multiplied? If we have it, why do we need it multiplied? Well, there's probably some reasons for that and I'm going to try to give you some answers. Is because the whole of the Christian life, what we call sanctification, is all of grace. Every single step of it. And this is just one verse of many that could be used. Uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then notice what it says. For it is who's working in us, glass? God, who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Work out your salvation. Become more like Christ. Become more holy. And how does this all happen? It is God working in us. If God didn't work in us, we wouldn't be here today. We'd be at the bowling alley if it's open. I don't know if it's open. But we're not at the bowling alley. Those of you who have bad backs, you wouldn't be there. You'd probably be lounging before your TV. But God is working in us, both the will and to do of His good pleasure. Bless His name. Now, how are grace and peace multiplied? That's another question that we have. Well, it is by total reliance on God as we work out our salvation. So we need to explore the ways that God has ordained to work out our salvation. And we call these the ordinary means of grace. There's no mystery here. We don't have to lock ourselves up in a monastery or a convent for our lives to try to figure out how to grow. No, 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 no. We live in the world. We're not of the world. But God uses very ordinary means by which grace and peace are multiplied. What are they? Well, let's see if we can't discover them, what they are. We're helped by our London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 14, paragraph 1. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, 
and other means appointed by God is increased and strengthened. Doesn't that sound sort of like what we read in Second Peter chapter 1? Grace and peace be multiplied. Why is that? I suggest to you it's because the framers of our confession loved the Bible and were representing the Bible when they wrote the confession. I think that's the way it was. And so, um, we see this in the confession. Now, I have highlighted in bold other means appointed by God because the confession is not saying these are the only means that God uses. But they are the regular means that He uses. Uh, I'm, I've actually added um, a couple of means in this lesson uh, to the um, what, what the confession speaks here. So, we have... The Word of God, that's what the confession says. That's what strengthens us. That's why you're here today, isn't it? I mean, I've been praying for Daniel Hopkins all week. And Al Huber as he preaches tonight. And because it is the Word of God which strengthens us. I pray for, I pray every Saturday, I pray for a score, well, a couple score of preachers across the land as they preach the Word of God, that they would know the strength and the help of the Spirit as they preach. Um, and I hope you, you you pray that way too because it's the Word of God which strengthens us. That's how grace and peace are multiplied. The Word of God, prayer. Prayer. And aren't you glad? I am so glad that I am a member of a church that prays. A lot of churches don't pray anymore. They don't need to pray because they got methods and programs and it works just fine. Ah, but we need the power of the Spirit. And so we pray. Prayer. Baptism. We'll talk about each of these in some detail in just a few moments. The Lord's Supper, which we will all be observing tonight. And uh, what a blessing it is to remember our Lord's broken body and shed blood. And then I've added two. Singing is a means of grace. And I hope I can prove that to you. From the Bible, if it's not in the Bible, don't believe me, but if it's in the Bible, you better believe the Bible, right? And then also fellowship. And I think we can prove that from the Bible as well. So, we'll look at these individually. The ordinary means of grace. First of all, the Word of God read and taught. And I didn't copy these um, Scriptures down, but I do have them in my notes, so I want to read some of them to you. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and verse 17. We read this. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a, without a preacher? And then verse 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You see what the Bible's teaching us here? We need to hear the Word of God. It is the Word of God which leads us to salvation. It is the Word of God which leads us to growth in the grace of Christ. First Peter chapter 2, verse 2. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. And dearly beloved, I tell you, we must never get beyond being newborn babes. That's how we grow. You say, yeah, but some people seem to have this deep understanding of theology. God bless the world for them. But they're newborn babes too. They need to be in the Word day by day, growing in the Word. And then um, we have Acts 20, verse 32. So then, brethren, 
I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders there in Acts chapter 20. Uh, and uh, those of us who have ever been pastors or those who are pastors or teachers, uh, we, we can't read that chapter without a deep, <laughs> a deep thanksgiving for what Paul said to these men and how he said to them specifically, I'm commending you to God, but to the word of his grace, because it's by the word of his grace that you're going to grow and be able to teach others the word of God. Wow. Isn't that great? Um, <clears throat> the public preaching and the reading of the Word of God are the primary means that God uses for the conversion and growth in grace. I'm convinced of that. Uh, I mean, you remember, you remember, is, is it uh, Psalm 23? You all know Psalm 23? Remember in that psalm it says that the psalmist longs for green pastures. What are the green pastures? It's the place where the Word of God is taught. That's the green pastures. And, and so we, we, we need this. The, and, and, and it's the primary means. Remember what? Paul told Timothy, and you see it up on the screen here, preach the word. I will never forget when, forget when Dr. Lawler, my Greek professor, probably a Greek exegesis, as we were going through 2 Timothy, and we came to that verse, chapter 4, verse 2, he pointed his finger across his desk and he says, men, preach the word. Preach the word. Preach the word. And uh, I thought, that's what I want to do. Preach the word, and that's what that's what every godly Reformed Baptist pastor wants to do. Every godly Reformed man, every every evangelical who's a really really understands the Bible wants to do is preach the word. Forget the stories, forget all the wonderful rhetoric that makes people laugh, but preach the word. That's what we need, and so and then also the reading of the word. And we we are in a church, thank God, that believes in the reading of the word. And uh, until I come, Paul said, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. That's the Legacy Standard Bible. But uh, it, it, the word that's used there isn't just reading privately. It's talking about a public reading of the Scripture. And so it is by the public reading of Scripture. And I, so I thank God for the young men that are reading the Scripture here and explaining it to us. And bringing it to our own hearts and souls. Isn't that a blessing? I think it is. I hope you agree with me. And then there is the private reading and the meditation on the Word of God. I mean, we need to read it privately. Um, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffer. But what? His delight is in the Word of God. And in that Word, he meditates day and day. Night. Yes. And then Psalm 119. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to your word. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So there's the private reading of the word as part of the ordinary means of grace. Prayer. 
public and private prayer. Public prayer. The examples of public prayer are numerous in the early church, and I want to read some of those to you. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And this was prior to Pentecost. But as they were waiting, as Jesus told them and exhorted them to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit of God would come, they prayed. And isn't that an important lesson for us? God had given them a promise. The Spirit is coming. What do you do when you have a promise? You pray. And you ask the Lord to keep His promise. He always keeps His promise, but we ask Him to keep His promise because that's what He wants us to do. Acts 2, verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in prayers. And then the church prayed with boldness. Um, the um, You remember after the, the apostles were persecuted and they were told not to preach anymore? And Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness, they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, they prayed for boldness. We pray for boldness. The place may not be shaken. It'd be okay if it is. We'd probably call it an earthquake. But the point is that the early church prayed. And then Acts 13, 2 and 3, uh, as they ministered, that is the elders and the prophets in Antioch, to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and praised and laid hands on them, they sent them away. They fasted and they prayed. The Holy Spirit said, send them. So they prayed. Lord, help us to send them. And they sent them out. So public prayer is one of the ordinary means of grace. Ordinary. Because it's to be practiced in the church regularly. And private prayer. How did... um, um, Oh, why does his name escape me? You know him. Uh, He was the one that... um, the Holy Spirit said, go and find Saul of Tarsus. Um, come on, tell me who it was. You, 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 I hate it when something escapes my brain. But anyway, how is he going to determine? That on, he, was on, he told him what street he was on, and that's all he told him. He says, here's how you're going to find him. He's praying. Oh, he's the only man on the street that you'll find praying. Who was he? He'd just been converted on the road to Damascus. Yeah, you got it. Who was it? Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. I'm glad there's someone here who has a brain. Okay, it was, it was Cornelius. 
He's going to be praying. And the private prayer, private prayer. First, uh, First Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. This isn't just to the church, but it's to us as individuals as well. And then we don't, we won't look at all these psalms, but you just, you look through the psalms and they are prayer after prayer after prayer. And it's the individual that's praying. That's just some examples of that here in the ordinary means of grace. Baptism. One of the ordinary means of grace that our confession states. Uh, I, don't suppose I have to tell you this, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Baptism does not save. And it does not communicate grace. It's a sign. It's a symbol. But it doesn't communicate grace as some denominations teach. The one that we're most familiar with, uh, Roman Catholics believe that it actually communicates grace. Regenerates, they believe. But that isn't so. But baptism is a sign that Christ commands and baptism is something that belongs to the church. Uh, it always happens within the church. Now, there is the exception we have with the Ethiopian eunuch, but that's an exception. Exceptions prove the rule. Really. As you, Now I opened up a whole can of worms and I'm going to approach it. Just talk amongst yourselves afterwards and Everyone will be able to straighten everyone out on that. How is baptism a means of grace? Well, it's a sign of our union with Jesus Christ. As Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 uh, teach. Um, Let's see. I don't think I wrote that down, so let's turn to that because that's a very important passage. Ephesians chapter 6. Or, yeah, Romans. Do I have Ephesians up there? It's Romans. That just proves to you I can't read either. Romans chapter 6 and verses 1 through 4. Um, we'll read this. Baptism is a sign of our union with Christ. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his exposition of Romans, if, if you're teaching the gospel and a person doesn't ask that question, you just have not taught Romans 5 correctly. It's a question that must arise. It's a question of, of an antinomian. But I don't have time to go into that either. But you, read, you read Romans 5 and you'll understand it. Certainly not. No, no, no. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, that is baptized into Him by the power of the Spirit of God and giving us new, regenerate life, and were baptized into His death, we were baptized into His death so that we died to sin, as Paul goes on to explain in this chapter, so that sin no longer has the ultimate dominion over us. Therefore, We were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the grace of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. And so our baptism is a sign that pictures the reality of the spiritual power that came into our lives when we died to sin and we were raised to new life in Jesus Christ and so walk in that newness of life. 
It is a sign of the forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 22. Arise um, and be baptized and wash away your sins. So, that was in, um, in Acts chapter 22 verse 16. It's a sign of newness of life and so it indicates a desire to live and to walk with Christ. So how are grace and peace multiplied to us in baptism? How does this happen? Well, let me give some suggestions. Baptism causes us to rejoice in the powerful work of the Spirit in saving sinners. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. Baptisms that we've seen here in this building. What is your response and reaction when you see someone baptized? You want to clap. I know we don't clap as Reformed Baptists, but we want to. We want to shout hallelujah. We don't do it, but we want to. You see? Because we're, why? Because we see someone who's giving this public profession of faith in Jesus Christ that it overwhelms us with joy. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. You see? And um, baptism reminds us of our own baptism. Those of us here who have made professions of faith in Christ, we've been baptized. We've been put under the water. We've been brought out of the water. And we see that and say, yes, that's me. That's me. Um, and, and, and God has spoken to us. And, and we realize it's our union with Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven. And so it builds us up, you see, with this ordinary means of grace. As we see baptisms and as we remember our own baptism. And then our London... Baptist Confession of Faith says baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him, his death and resurrection and of his being engrafted into him of the remission of sins and of giving us up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. And again, I think our, the author, the, 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 uh, Framers of our confession must have read the Bible and uh, did that. And there's a reason I say that. We don't go to the confession first, do we? We go to the Bible. And then as we see the Bible, we say, oh, <laughs> that, that, that's why I love the confession of faith. Because I've read the Bible. And the confession expresses what the Bible teaches. And um, <clears throat> the Bible is always on top. I hope, I know you believe that. Well, let's move on to the Lord's Supper. Now, Jesus commanded the Lord's Supper. And tonight, um, Pastor Al will be, I, I'm sure it'll be Pastor Al who will be leading in the Lord's Supper. He'll read one of these passages or maybe some others where, where I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread When he had given thanks, he broke and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. And after the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So Jesus commanded this. In the Gospels, Paul repeats it in 1 Corinthians uh, that this was commanded. Now, how are grace and peace multiplied to the believer in the Lord's Supper? 
I'm glad you asked because I want to answer that question. In the act of remembering the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord Jesus, as we by faith eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we are brought back to the central truth of Christianity, to the cross. And the remembrance of the cross spiritually nourishes our soul. And this is exactly what Jesus wanted from us. He wanted us to remember Him. And isn't it, isn't it significant that he, what He wants us to remember is His broken body and His shed blood. I did this for you, He said. And in saying that, we are reminded that we needed a broken body and, and shed blood. We need that. We need our sins forgiven. We need a Savior like our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is how grace and peace is multiplied to us every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. Singing the Word. Now, our confession doesn't say this, but I remind you it said, and other means. And I've added this because I've read in the New Testament that, um, that singing is something we're supposed to do in the church. Uh, and you've read that too. So, Ephesians 5.19 Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Um, have you ever read C.S. Lewis on um, congregational singing? I, it's in one of his essays that he wrote. And uh, I don't know why I remember it. I suppose because it just stuck in my head at the time I wrote it. I read it. But C.S. Lewis talks about congregational singing. And of course, he was in a tradition that used trained voices and a choir. And then he talked about what some people say, well, we shouldn't sing because we can't carry a tune. Or we just don't sound all that great. And he concluded something like this. He said, you know, he said, the Bible says make a joyful noise unto the Lord. <laughs> and some of us say, or some of you may say, that's about all I can do is make a noise. But it's a joyful noise. We sing. And, um, and, and you can learn to sing, actually. Uh, talk to my friend Grant. He's, he's got an app that can give you the, the notes for soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. And you can listen to them each separately if you want, uh, if, if you need that. But, it, it, but, but what, but what C.S. Lewis is saying is, the Lord is pleased when His people together raise their voice in praise to Him. And so singing. And, and, and then Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Singing is a means of grace. It's a very important means of grace according to the Bible. Now, what is the meaning of the word singing in the Bible? Well, Thayer. You don't know who Thayer is, but I do. He's a, he, it's a Greek lexicon. Uh, I have a number of Greek lexicons, but Thayer did it as well as any, so I just quote him. Here's what Thayer says. In both passages, meaning Ephesians and Colossians, the lyrical emotion of a devout and grateful soul. Don't you love that? The lyrical emotion of a devout and grateful soul. 
It's okay to have emotion when you're singing. Did you know that? It's okay. It is okay. So the church is to sing with a, and this is a quotation from Thera again, the, the Greek authority here, melody in the heart. That is hearty singing. Hearty singing. So, there you go. Singing the word. How are grace and peace multiplied uh, to the saints in singing? Well, singing the word solidifies God's truth to the soul. And it does, doesn't it? It really solidifies God's truth. Singing gives the saints opportunity for exuberance and the praise to God. And then listen to Dr. Sam Waldron. Uh, Sam Waldron is, I think most of you know, Dr. Sam Waldron. Uh, he was uh, one of the elders at Grace Emanuel Reformed Baptist Church. And then he got his Ph.D. Now he's the president of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, a seminary that we have actually three young men that are enrolled in the program there. And he's uh, and the guy can sing. Ooh, my, can he sing. He's got a voice that we lust after. Anyway, here we go. Singing the Word by Dr. Waldron. This is from the book, How Then Should We Worship?, which is a very, very good book, I think. I, I, I just had to keep reading in it. But here's what Dr. Waldron says. It's at the very conclusion of the chapter about singing. He says, notice several things by uh, conclusion. These scriptures about singing the praise of God from the heart make several things clear. First, we must sing with understanding. Amen. Don't be... You've heard of 7-Eleven songs. You don't need much understanding for 7-Eleven songs. They, re, they repeat seven words 11 times over and over again. I, I've been in churches where they did that. And I thought, hey, I got it. I got it. I understand it. Now what? Okay. So we sing with the understanding. Second, we must sing with thanksgiving. Third, we must sing with energy. Fourth, we must sing as God helps us with emotion. It is a lie and a sin to mumble thoughtlessly and heartlessly through the congregational singing of the church. Did you understand what I said? You can read it. It's a lie and a sin, he says, to mumble through the singing of the church. Teach yourself to sing. Teach your children to sing as soon as they are old enough to read. Make them stand up. Make them look at the words. Make them sing with their mouths and pray that they will one day sing with their hearts. So, singing. Thank you, Dr. Waldron. One more. Koinonia. Fellowship. Koinonia seems to be a Greek word that everybody in the church knows. That's good. What is fellowship? Two parts or two sides of fellowship. The word is used 14 times in the New Testament. And uh, Acts 2.24 says they continued in the fellowship. And that's a common use of the word. In fact, of the 14 times it's used, it's probably used that way in, I'd say, 10 to 11 times at least, maybe 12. Um, and, and it simply means that they were sharing together the great truths of the gospel in conversation and enjoying one another's uh, company in social settings, at the church, and so forth. So that's, a, that's the common use of the word koinonia, or fellowship. But there's another side, is working together and giving together. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Employing us with much urgency, 
um, that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. And that's what uh, Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church to do for the needy saints in Jerusalem. He said, I want you to fellowship with them. I want you to open your pocketbooks and give money. So when we opened our pocketbooks and gave money for air conditioning in St. Vincent, we were that's a form of fellowship, laboring together and working together, you see, in, in that way. Uh, Philippians 1.5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And the Philippian church was a church that gave for Paul to support and help him in his ministry. And that's, a, that's, one way, that's another way that we fellowship. So one side of fellowship is laboring together for the gospel causes. It includes uh, conversation and also uh, going to the nursing home, participating in the angel tree, VBS, packing Christmas shoe boxes, and so forth. It includes all that too. And here you have it. Here you have it. This was um, <clears throat> uh, the packing of the um, Christmas shoe boxes. And then we, we got all, didn't get a picture of everyone, but the last nursing home ministry, all these young people were involved in the nursing home ministry there. And that's a fellowship at Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Rockford, Illinois, where we happen to be at the moment. And there's another picture of the, of the um, ones that were doing the shoeboxes. That was way outside of my ability, trying to wrap those boxes so they could still be opened. I mean, I don't know if I, I, I need a lot of help to do that kind of thing. Well, anyway, that, that, that's, that's all I have to say today, which is wonderful because we have four minutes left. But I will just say this, that on Wednesday night, Lord willing, we'll look at the ordinary means of grace and revival. And we'll begin by looking, first of all, at revival in the New Testament. Uh, and we'll not look at, we're not going to look at Pentecost. I, that, that, that obviously was a revival, but I'm going to look at two other places uh, two other churches where Paul went that we, we can note specifically that there was an unusual working of the Spirit of God in those two places. That the ordinary means of grace which Paul used in all the churches, in those two churches, there, was, there, there were results that were just beyond what happened in other places. Why is that? Same man, same message. Ah, come Wednesday night and I will show you. And then we'll also look at the... Um, uh, some revivals in history. I'm going to concentrate only on the Second Great Awakening. And I'm going to have reasons to do that because the Second Great Awakening, is, uh, which occurred really over 25 years, from 1800 to 1825, is really the, the revival that um, at least I have labeled as the quiet revival. Oh, you say, but I, I know. It, went out, it got out of hand in about 1825 and following. But at least for the first number of years, it was a quiet revival. And we'll, we'll show that and demonstrate that as well. Well, I have... Ooh, this is really nice. I've got, I got a minute and a half yet for questions. Any questions before we pray and go fellowship with one another? Well, good. Well, let's pray then, shall we? <clears throat> Our Father and our God, we thank You for the ordinary means of grace. And we pray that You'd help us to profit from them greatly as we participate, them, participate in them together. Help us, we pray, 
in the worship service to follow, and the, to hear the reading of the Scriptures, the preaching of the Scriptures, the singing, and then the Lord's Supper tonight, and the prayers that are offered. We ask, Lord, that You be pleased to bless these in a wonderful and glorious way in our own lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.